Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Ted, and I will be reading our scripture passage for today's time of teaching. It's found in the book of Romans, the sixth chapter, verses one through four. It's on page 886 in your pew Bible or on the screens behind me. Dead to sin, alive to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just praise the Lord for the truth he reveals to us in his word. Well, when you came into church this morning, hopefully in addition to the bulletin, you received a big colorful packet that has a lot of words. <laughs> I know it has a lot of words. Uh, we put them all there. Um, I don't want to overwhelm you with all of those words, but I do want to call your attention to it, take it home, read it at your leisure, ask us questions. Um, but they're about, largely about our church and what we hope will be a church plant a year from now. And so there's a lot related to that of how the changes there will affect the here and so on and so forth. So this is our first attempt to start talking about this more regularly and more often with more words. And so we have three town halls coming up um, the weekend of the 12th and 13th. And uh, they're identical in a sense, um, breakfast and some desserts. We would love for you to come, but to our members, I would want to say it even stronger, we actually really want you to pick one of them and come to it um, so that it can't just be Ben planning a church, but we plan a church together. So that's happening, and I wanted you to have that and acknowledge it. As we turn our attention to the passage Ted read, uh, I'll say this. I have a, a Google Sheet. It's like um, uh, Excel, basically, online, uh, of every sermon that we've preached here over the last nine years. And then at the bottom is the sermons we hope to preach over the next few months. And a few years ago, a member of our church suggested uh, to me and us, we should do a mini-series of sorts on three things. Bap uh, he started with church membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And I thought, that's a good idea. Then COVID happened, <laughs> and we never did it. Uh, I took my Excel doc, and I just kept moving. I couldn't bring myself to delete it. So I kept moving it further and further away. But as I moved it further and further away, it grew. It's no longer three sermons, but 12. Yeah, well, it's, we're halfway in, so it's, don't feel that bad. Like, it became what we're doing now, which is this sermon series on the local church. I felt like there was a wait of like 12, sir. Uh, just one this morning, jeez. Uh, um, but anyway, so we, we, as it grew, we just realized there's so much we, about the local church that needs to be said. You can't just start here and say that immediately, but... If you're talking about this and you're talking about the sweep of redemption, then who leads the church? Well, Jesus leads the church. And then who leads in local churches? Well, pastor, elders, deacons, and church members. So we've talked about all that. But now we come to what were two of those original sermons, which are this week on baptism, next week on the Lord's Supper. And they may seem like, they may seem like such ordinary things, just washing, just eating. But how like our God, to take something ordinary and make it extraordinary. How like our God to turn a simple tub of water into a sign of new life with him. 
Would you pray with me as we begin to talk about all of that? Heavenly Father, we sang moments ago that this river's depth, the river of the gospel, the river of justification by faith alone, that, that we are made righteous in your sight, not by what we've done, but what you've done on our behalf, that, that river that floods blessings into our lives. We can't know the depth, but we can glory in its flood. May you enable us to glory in the flood of the gospel that pours into our lives this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll start with a silly question that's not all that silly. What is a local church? What is a local church? What are these things that Jesus is so busy building? I'll put it like this, the way I put it in a membership class the other night. If four Christians meet on a Tuesday night at a restaurant to talk about Jesus, is that a church? What would make it a church? What if they meet not at a restaurant but a house? So then is that a house church? Or what if they met at a park? So is the issue one of location? Or do they need more than four people to be a church? Say like, well, if you had 40 people, then we could call it a church because it's an issue of numbers. What if those four Christians begin to meet regularly? It's not one meeting, but they meet regularly on Tuesday nights. And what if they don't meet on Tuesday nights, but they meet on Sunday morning? So is it an issue of their frequency and their day of the week? Is that what makes a church a church? And I called them Christians. I said, quote, four Christians meet to talk about Jesus. But what if in the process of their talking, three of them realize that one of them is probably not a Christian? What then? Well, of course, you know, no one can fully know who is a Christian except for God. That's for God to determine. But, but what if God has given us means whereby we can recognize and attest to a credible profession of faith? Like, what if he hasn't been silent on those things? In answering these questions, we're getting closer to answering what makes a church. But let's keep going with our silly question just for one more minute. What if during their Tuesday night discussion about Jesus, what if one of these Christians says to another Christian in the group, or in fact all the Christians in the group, he says, you know, I've never been baptized, and being baptized is the sort of thing that Jesus says is a good thing to do. Matthew 28, he talks about to go you know, into all the nations, um, baptizing and, and teaching people to observe everything I've commanded you. That's what Jesus commanded. And the group says, yeah, that's right. And then he says, but I've never been baptized. And then he says, would you baptize me? There were just three or maybe four Christians talking about Jesus, but now they're practicing baptism. Did something change? Well, I won't answer all of my questions here, but I want to say that historically, the answer of when does a group of Christians become a church has two answers to it. When there is the right administration of the word of God and the sacraments. Sacraments being the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, some people don't like the word sacraments. They prefer the word ordinances, meaning the things that God has ordained. But it's still baptism in the Lord's Supper. So they would say that a church, when a church is a church, they are rightly preaching the word that is seen teaching Christian truth, but particularly the gospel story through all of scripture, right administration of the word and right administration of the sacraments. That what is what makes a church a church. Now, there's more to it than that. 
But if you have the right preaching of the word and the right practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper, then you have lots of other things going on as well that make a church a church. For example, regular gatherings, proper leadership and authority, clear lines of membership, and affirmation of Christian faith, church discipline, and so on and so forth. When you have the word and sacrament, you have the church. Which is a long way to say that baptism is a pretty big deal. It's part of what makes a church a church. Now, if you don't think highly of baptism, I would hope over the course of the morning that we could raise your view of baptism to be closer to what I believe God's view of baptism is. But I don't want you to merely take my words for it. I want to try and show us from the text of Scripture itself God's word showing what God wants us to believe. So hopefully you have Romans 6 still open that Ted read a moment ago. If not, please turn there. I'm going to be reading and preaching through the first four verses. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. I'll read them again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're picking up the line of thought midstream, like you know that because we started in Romans 6, not Romans 1, right? But you can get, tell just from the words themselves, what shall we say then? Right? That's the sort of thing you say when you've been saying something that needs more to be said. What shall we say then? Paul has more to say. And I don't want to go backward in the letter too far except to say that Paul has been talking about how sinners like you and I, get every good thing from God instead of his wrath. That's what he's been talking about in Romans. He's been talking about how in the person of Jesus, those who trust Jesus and give Jesus their sins, instead of wrath from God, get God's righteousness. When we trust Jesus, he takes our sins, dying in our place, and that's good news. So that When a God sees a Christian, he sees not not a sinner per se, but he sees his own son. And all the love and all the affection that God has for his son, he sees over you if you're in Christ. That's what he's been talking about. But in that conversation, he's talked about the grace and the forgiveness so lavishly that it could cause one of Paul's opponents perhaps to have said, or Paul's just anticipating that they might say, well, with all this grace that comes from all this sinning, maybe we should just do a whole lot of sinning so that grace would look even better. And then we read in verse 1 again, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? How does Paul answer his own question? What does it say? By no means. Then he adds in verse 2, how can we who died to sin live in it? Once a person has really seen what sin is and the cost to the Savior, that should not lead to doing more sin, but hating any sin that we might do. 
That's what he means by saying not live in it, live in it. He's describing a certain relationship with sin that shouldn't exist, in fact can't exist for the Christian. To to live in sin is to live in a relationship with sin in such a way that it it brings you pleasure and joy, but, but you don't feel the guilt, the shame, the sadness that you're bringing dishonor to Christ, which to be frank is the relationship that some of you might have with sin. You might be living in sin. And I just want to say to you that maybe what you're doing, even though you probably, if you've been around church for a while especially, you feel like a bad Christian, but maybe the reality is that you're not a Christian at all. Which I say that not to do something heavy and hard to you, but to free you to the possibility of something better than just feeling bad. But that's a different sermon mostly but it does lead to verse three because Paul's in this conversation about this new relationship to sin and to Jesus he says well let's talk about baptism for him it's a seamless leap look at verse three do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ or excuse me Christ Jesus were baptized into his death that phrase you can put your finger on it do you not know what, what does that imply It implies that Paul is building upon teaching they already had. These were not the first words about the gospel and conversion and baptism they've ever had, just like for probably most of you. These are not the first words about baptism and conversion and the gospel you've ever had. But regardless, Paul wants to remind that baptism is a sign. Just like, in a sense, a road sign. It's a sign. It's pointing to something, just like all signs do. If you leave our church and go north a couple blocks to Jonestown Road, depends which way you go, but you know, one way you'll hit two and another way you'll hit one. There are three funeral homes very close by, and when I drive by them, sometimes I'll see a line of cars outside. Those line of cars are a sign, in a sense, that something on the outside is pointing to. Something's happening on the inside, namely a funeral. Someone has died. In the same way, baptism is a sign like that. Baptism points to death, a funeral, a graveside service, a burial. Not the person's physical death, but their spiritual death, a death that happened when Jesus died. Christians are, to use Paul's words, baptized into, what does it say? His death. For the Christian, his or her spiritual death is Jesus' death, which is all symbolized in baptism. This is why in baptism... Even though water is generally a positive symbol in the Bible most of the time, in baptism there's a sense in which the waters of baptism represent a grave. Or we might say a tomb. As morbid as it might sound, this tub of water is part coffin. Which is a sobering thought. It speaks to the human predicament with sin indicating that it's so bad that no effort on our part will heal us from it. We have to die, which gets to verse 4, because there's more than death, praise the Lord. If we had time, we go to verse 5 and so on and so forth. We'll stop in verse 4. Baptism's not only a sign of death, it's a sign of life. It's a double sign. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, Paul writes, In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ went into the tomb, Christ rose out of the tomb. 
Baptism preaches the Christian message. It's good news. Through Jesus we have death to sin and resurrection to newness of life. What a message. And notice that phrase, baptized into Christ Jesus. When we get Jesus, we get it all. His story becomes our story. We get all of him. All of his warmth, all of his forgiveness, all of the glory goes to God. It's a good story. The heart of Christ broken open wide. For you, in the gospel, baptism symbolizes all of this. This is what God wanted to teach the church in Rome, and I believe all churches that come after that church in Rome, churches like our church, as Jesus is building them. But before moving to a time in our service, we're going to practice baptism. I want to say a little bit about baptism and the local church. We've been talking about Romans 6 and Baptism, but I want to talk for a minute about more generally the local church and baptism. There's so many things I want to say at this moment. When I first began pastoral ministry, I was surprised, even caught off guard by something. I had wrongly assumed that the majority of people in a church would have what we might call a fairly clean or tidy story of their baptism. However, many of us have grown up going to different churches with different theologies and different views of baptism, which has led most of us to actually have what we might call a squirrely story about baptism. It doesn't mean they're bad or wrong necessarily. It just means it's more complicated and messy than I ever had anticipated. So a man perhaps was baptized at some point, But now he doesn't know whether that baptism counts because it was done in a church where he doesn't believe the teachings that that church church teaches anymore. Or perhaps the person who baptized him has now walked away from the faith. What does that say about his baptism? Is that still valid? Or perhaps there was a woman who was baptized not one time but several times as the Lord deepened her faith over the years she thought I should be re-baptized. Or maybe she was never baptized but a church shamed her into being baptized. And so it's not a joyful thing as she thinks about her own baptism. This is what I mean by squirrely. Again, this used to surprise me. Now I just assume most people in a church have a story that reflects something like one of those stories or some other squirrely story more than people who have more of a clean, tidy story. And so as I prepared the sermon, I listed my Microsoft Word doc, something like 15 things I wanted to say to you about baptism. And I realized that's not going to happen. But I thought I could say one thing that encompassed a whole bunch of them. And I just spend a page or so talking about that. Here's the idea. Baptism belongs to the local church. Excuse me, let me say it. Baptism belongs in the local church, not to, sorry, I missed the preposition. Baptism belongs in the local church. By in the church, I don't mean in the church on the stage the way I have, we have this set up today. We've taken the same tub and put it right out there, and that's not in a church, right? It's outside a church. So I don't mean that. And we've had baptisms at our church before that took place up at a pond 20 minutes from here. It was a beautiful ceremony several times. We've done that. What I mean by saying in the church is to say, endorsed by the church, connected 
to the church. You may not have noticed this, but when we do baptisms, we always have at least one member of our pastor elders on stage, either on one side of the tub or just somewhere around. Not because it couldn't happen if we weren't there, but it's supposed to be this subtle message that says, we endorse this. We bless this. We smile on this. We have investigated this and praise God for this. There's other men and women that might be up here that have played a special role in the person's coming to faith, but we always put a pastor elder up there for that reason. So that what we're saying is that when someone goes into the water, they go into the grave with Christ, and when they come out of the water, they come out of the grave with Christ. When that happens on the outside, we're attesting to as best as we can know, something's happened on the inside, and it's wonderful. Because baptism belongs in a local church, we don't do baptisms on youth trips to the beach. That would pull baptisms away from the parents who raised the child, away from the church who loved and taught that child, away from the pastor elders, away from the baptism interview process. And I know that could sound really, really particular. Like, wow, we thought you, you know, the Evangelical Free Church is broad. And like, this feels very particular. I understand. Hear me out for a minute. We titled this baptism sermon, A Sign of Our New Life. So the whole series is, I Will Build My Church, it's Matthew 16, Jesus' words, subtitle, God's Anecdote for an Anxious and Apathetic Age. The church, Jesus building the church, is, is an anecdote for our anxious and apathetic age. We're apathetic about the church, we're anxious about the world. And, and then each little sermon has been saying like this one phrase, something for something. This is a sign for our new life. Next week, a meal for our forgetfulness. Baptism is a sign for new life, and we see that true in the passage, verse 4. Walking in newness of life, it says. But the sign of baptism, the sign of baptism, the sign of newness of life, is not merely for the individual. We believe baptism is a sign of new life for the whole church. To steal that sign away in a private expression of individual spiritual spirituality, it actually subverts the authority of the church and it steals away that sign of new life, a sign that belongs to the whole community, to the local church. I'll tell you, this is part of why we don't do baptisms off-site in an extra service anymore. They were awesome. There were wonderful picnics on Sunday nights. We had wonderful times. In a sense, there was nothing wrong with them. But the re- part of the reason we don't do it like that and we do it in the church, church service is because I tended to notice that two groups of people that really needed to see baptisms often didn't make the extra trip. First, it was those on the fringe of Christianity. It's too much to come to an extra service. They're only kind of slightly connected to Jesus anyway. To go to an extra service... Maybe not. Maybe that describes some of you. And you need to see baptisms regularly so that you see that the call of Christ is a call to come and die and then live. And when you die and live in Christ, you do so with all the redeemed. And we as a church open our arms and with joy and celebration, welcome you into our community, even as heaven rejoices. There should be no quiet baptisms because there are no quiet conversions 
because all of heaven rejoices. And those of you on the fringe need to see baptisms, know that not only must you be changed, but you can be changed. And I would say the other group who would tend to skip baptisms tended to be those who were older and, dare I say, more cynical. You've been around long enough to say you've been around long enough. And you've seen some things about the church. Many of them, you think, are not so good. And you'd be right, because there's plenty of things about most churches, in fact, all churches in one way or another, that aren't so good. So you're right. But in all you're seeing, perhaps there's things you're not seeing. Maybe you've grown cynical about the fact that God can change people. And you need the loving rebuke that a baptism brings. You need someone to go into the grave and come back out and a crowd of people go bonkers in celebration to remind you that just as you in Christ through faith come out of the grave with him, one day you will actually come out of the grave with him and live forever. Baptism reminds all of us, whether you're in one of those two categories or none of those categories, baptism reminds all of us that God not only changes people, but he keeps changing people. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, baptism reminds us that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, I've come to the end. I've said something about Romans 6 in baptism. I've said something about the local church in baptism, but I realize I've not said a whole bunch of things. <laughs> I've not said anything about infant baptism or believer's baptism, which is what we practice here. I've not said anything about the difference between Roman Catholic baptism and Presbyterian baptism, which is a significant difference. I've not said anything about the right age to be baptized, if there is such an age. I've not said anything about the person who was baptized at one point and then 10 years later looks back and says, I don't know if I was a believer then. And I guess what we'll have to do is leave all of those questions to classes and conversations that we have plenty of time for for whoever and whenever you'd want to talk about them. So that we can close with this. When talking about baptism, I'm often talking about my wedding ring. In the sense that it declares to the world that I'm in an exclusive relationship with someone, namely my wife. Just as baptism declares, it's not the thing that makes me married, right? But it points to the marriage. Just as baptism isn't the thing that saves us or puts us in relationship with Christ, but it points to the fact that you're in an exclusive relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus. And when I stand up and officiate weddings, I used to have a standard opening. <laughs> I've had to change up my game a little bit because so many of you end up at the same weddings with me. <laughs> and I feel like I was being heckled for not writing new wedding things. Um, you know who you are. And it was right. It was, I deserved it. Um, but I would often start my weddings by saying, I have a hope and prayer that we would be enabled to see. Anybody know what I would say there? Anybody? To see. This was good. First service didn't know either, which means I can start bringing it back. Um, uh, I hope and pray that through the wedding ceremony, we would be enabled to see the invisible. It's actually a line I learned from my boss when I was a younger pastor at another church. He would say that the marriage of a man and a woman is an invisible reality. 
God is the one who joins a couple together, he would say. But he would pray at a wedding that through the elements of the wedding service, the vows, the prayers, the preaching, the exchange of rings, the declaration of a man and woman now as husband and wife, the kissing of the bride, the affirmation and applause of the congregation, that the invisible would become visible. And just as the invisible reality of what a marriage points to, the good news story of Jesus would become visible in a sense through all of those things. I guess my hope here as we end this sermon is the same thing about baptism. I pray that God would enable us to see the invisible. The story of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, which is to us an invisible reality. Not always invisible. There were those who saw it. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15 of 500 who saw the risen Lord in one gathering. But to us, the thing we only see with eyes of faith, I hope and pray becomes visible through the story of baptism. Specifically through the baptism this morning of Hannah, Violet, Caleb, and Bell. Just one in this service, though. Would you join me in prayer? Next week, we'll talk about the Lord's Supper. A meal for our forgetfulness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. In one way or another, all of us need you to break through the ice that forms over our heart and warm us to the beauty of who you are. We thank you for the ways you do that in the gospel, in the singing in the preaching, and in your sacraments. In Christ's name we pray, amen.